You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden on you. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him 
I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks, J.D. Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Alan. I am one of the staff members here. Uh, and we just heard, if you haven't been with us, uh, a section from the book of Revelation, which we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, anybody go to the game yesterday? Homecoming game? I'm so sorry. Oh, man, what a heartbreaking finish. Um, I did not go. Um, and yet the heartbreak is still there. That's what being an Illinois fan is all about. Um, so um, I love homecoming. I wish I... In some ways, I wish I had a chance to come home. I feel like it's, we've been here, and it's fun to see the town and community change. And it's fun when folks come back. So, um, yeah, I'm just I'm thankful to be here and be firmly planted here. Um, <clears throat> speaking of firmly planted, who likes vision statements? That is more people than I expected. Okay. Um, can I read to you this, uh, this quote that sounds kind of like a vision statement? Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottoms, well, as, bottom as, whoops, uh, the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Bottom as, sorry guys. Um, do, you guys do you guys have any idea what that might be from? U of I? Interesting. Okay, so a college. It is from a college. Harvard. Nailed it. Yeah, David, I don't know how you knew that, but thank you for knowing that. Um, that is the founding statement for, the uni or for Harvard University. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew that, but Harvard started as a school to teach ministers. Um, and yet over the course of its founding from in the 16, 1636, um, it took 65 years for another group of people to say, this school is too secular. Uh, and so they got some funding from a guy named Elihu Yale, and they established Yale University. Um, these schools have some level of, of faith to them and their background and their history, but I don't think if we were thinking, where am I going to go to have a firm foundation of my faith? I don't think you're thinking I'm going to Harvard or Yale. Just a guess. And maybe not, like, it's just guessing. Um, I don't think of them as Christian bastions in our culture. So what happened? What happened to these organizations that started out to train ministers to start doing something really good and they drifted away? We see it all the time, right? We see organizations that start with a really good gospel foundation and shift away from it. Um, another one of those that I love um, is a place that maybe you've gone to swim before um, or play basketball, the YMCA. Um, the YMCA started as a place to train Christians, your age people actually, young Christians, to lead in the church. So much so that the YMCA of the Rockies, where we send some of you for the summer and you should go and work in the YMCA this summer on our LT program, was founded as a camp to train young Christian leaders. Um, but over the years, they've lost who they are and they, they just are just the Y now. Um, and you could, you could chalk that up to simplified branding, but I think there's something more going on uh, with this. Um, this all comes from, these, these examples come from a book um, called Mission Drift, a 2014 book. Um, it was Christianity Today's book of the year in 2015, if you're interested in that. And it talks about how Christian organizations can stay true to who they are. Um, uh, 
it was a helpful read for me um, as somebody who can get excited about the new things and excited about what's going on around me. And I think it is a good example of what we're going into as we look at the church at Thyatira um, today in the book of Revelation. And so we are, we are in week four of seven uh, in the book of Revelation. Um, it's like Wednesday, like we're just right in the middle here. Um, and um, Revelation, as you guys know, is a challenging book. Uh, as you guys have engaged in your small groups, which I think is the best way. Yeah, get involved in a small group here. Do the pre-lab with each other. We do it in our small groups. We do the Bible study before we hear teaching on it. And so you get a chance to work through like, hey, how would I understand this? How would I read this? And you get a chance to get better at reading God's word uh, in community but instead of just having it taught to you. Um, there's so much to grasp in the book. Um, but so the way we're doing it is we're just looking at seven letters um, to churches in Asia Minor, which is what is modern day Turkey or Turkey, or how you're supposed to pronounce it and spell it now. Um, do you guys see that change? No, you guys don't? Yeah, there's two of you. Great. Um, uh, what I love about this, these books is it gives us a chance to kind of dip our toes into Revelation. It gives us a chance to look at apocalyptic literature and prophecy. It also gives us a chance to look at the world of that day, the churches of that day, not even really like 50 years to 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus. We get a chance to look at what the churches were dealing with at that point. It's a great historical look into what God's people were dealing with in those days. Spoiler, it's a lot of what we deal with today. Um, which is the last thing is, is scripture is a mirror for our lives. And so God's word is useful for teaching and admonishment and training us. And so every bit of it's useful for us, including these letters in Revelation, even with bronze feet and powerful eyes and things like that. That seemed confusing at first. Maybe a little differently, if it's helpful. In these letters, Jesus calls the church upward from their challenges, from their difficulties, and calls them to something greater. That renewal is something I think all of us need as individuals, that churches need, and we're going to get into that more as we talk about the church at Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira is a city. Okay, let's talk about Thyatira for a little, Thyatira for a little bit. Um, it is in the backwaters compared to the first three cities that we've looked at, first three letters. So these are real letters to real churches, okay? Ephesus was our first week, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, and then we're going to take this green road, it's not really green, uh, down to Thyatira, and then the next three weeks of Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I show you this because these are real places with real people that had real letters written to them. It's not just theoretical. It's not just symbols. It is real important stuff for real churches at that time. That makes sense? So Thyatira, it was like the backwoods compared to these other three cities. These other three cities are close to the coast. Some of them are even port cities. They've got power. They've got authority. Thyatira is like Decatur. Do you guys know Decatur? That's the point. You don't even know Decatur. Uh, Thyatira was a great place in between great places. It wasn't necessarily somewhere you'd go uh, unless you were going somewhere else. Um, so it was, it was on the, the, these trade routes. And so what happened in Thyatira was a lot of trade guilds came about. And so maybe if you're trying to trade between cities that are far away, maybe you go to Thyatira, meet up, and exchange your goods and things like that. Um, there's some archaeological evidence for this city. Because it's not a great of a, as great of a city, there's less clear, like, this is what the city looked like. These are the clear things we have. It was less important, and we can tell because we have less archaeological evidence because of the, for that. Uh, it doesn't mean that it wasn't 
wasn't real though, right? Like it was very real. In fact, we have a reference in the Old Testament, uh, or sorry, in the New Testament to Thyatira. Uh, in the book of Acts, um, there's a woman named Lydia uh, in Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, who she was a, a, a trader of purple goods, which if you guys knew this, purple, like this is one of those like fun little factoids if you're ever on Jeopardy. Uh, purple goods were expensive because the dyes to create purple were expensive. And so that's how they became the color of royalty. She was someone who traded in that. And so she is a convert to Christianity that Paul meets and shares the gospel with her. And she's from Thyatira. Just to give you a sense of like this city is, is there, how we, how we know it from other places. What's interesting about this being the smallest city that a letter is written to is also the longest letter, for whatever that's worth. It's like in the neighborhood of 220 words, um, if you care about that. And if you're writing a paper, you definitely do. <clears throat> um, each of these letters that we've looked at and are going to look at follow a basic pattern. Um, this is from the ESV Study Bible. You can see this. They're, they start with an opening, a description of Jesus. Oftentimes there's a commendation, a rebuke, not all the time. Smyrna didn't have a rebuke. There's a solution for the rebuke, consequences of disobeying, uh, and promises for the conquerors. These are how these letters are organized. If you haven't caught that pattern, that's the pattern. And that makes sense because we write letters with patterns typically. Hey, I hope this letter finds you well. This is why I'm writing you. Here's what's up with my family. How's your family? Peace. Um, right? We, do, we, do, we have ways we write things, and these are no different. And so... <clears throat> The best way to walk through this letter to Thyatira is just to kind of walk through that and see where these things are at. Uh, now, I'm not going to tag this stuff for you. You guys can sort of see, oh, this is that thing there. Um, we're going to walk through this letter um, and just walk through like, hey, here's each section. Here's what's going on. And then we're going to try to figure out what does it mean for us today? Sound good? Okay. Uh, we are going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Um, they're all, the words are all up here on the screen. Um, if they're too small for you, my wife always tells me my text on my phone is too small. So I apologize. But you can also find it in your Bible. Um, I have it up there so you can see the whole passage and kind of see it highlighted as we go along, um, which is why we have the whole thing up there. Uh, but we're going to start in verse 18. Okay. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, we have the description of Jesus. And so far, all these descriptions have come from the beginning of the letter. Uh, this calling Jesus the Son of God is the first time we have something not from the beginning of the descriptions of Jesus that John saw coming in. And it's an interesting uh, uh, epithet. That's the word I was looking for. It's a fancy word. It's an like interesting description of Jesus to call him the Son of God. We're very comfortable with that. But in this world, it would have been an interesting thing to think about. It would have had some uh, Jewish meaning. Say like, one like a Son of God. Uh, has some Christian meaning for sure, because we understand Jesus to be that. But it, also, it would have also had Roman meaning. Because the emperor was called the Son of God. Uh, in fact, there are descriptions in... Uh, places all around, um, excuse me, sorry, I lost my place here, uh, talking about how the emperor was the son of the emperor, the previous emperor, and, he's a, and he is a god. And so the son of God would have been a very natural way for a Roman to describe the emperor. 
which is some of the stuff we run into in these churches. If you remember in Pergamum, this was some of the issues. Where does power come from? Does it come from the government or does it come from God? In the same way, the challenge of power is coming up here. The other two descriptions, the one with the blazing eyes of blazing fire, um, it will come up later as it talks about he searches us, he sees us, he knows us, which if, um, is just powerful. These eyes can see our deeds, our good and our bad, our ugly, um, and he can see our hearts. And then the feet like burnished bronze. Well, I mentioned Thyatira is like Decatur. I don't know if you guys knew this, but Decatur has a foundry there that makes manhole covers. Uh, they would have known burnished bronze. It's something they worked with. It was a tool for them. Um, it was something that metal workers would have worked with, and it feels like it relates to the city. But there's also call-outs uh, to the Old Testament here, and you can see some of these references. Um, if we can put those up in Ezekiel and in Daniel. Um, I'll just read one of them. Um, uh, in Daniel chapter 2, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it was struck, sorry, it struck the image of its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. I'm not going to give you the whole story there, but there's a statue built up in Daniel that gets, there's a dream and it gets destroyed, and it's made of iron and clay, which is not like, if you did, anybody a material science major in here? It's not good. It doesn't work well. Uh, to have a, a feet made specifically of bronze is a lot stronger and communicates a kingdom that will last. And so these Old Testament call-outs, I, you're going to see them up here. The reason they're there is because this is how Revelation works. It ties together so much of Scripture. It's like the final project of Scripture. Like, here's all the ties, ends, and the research we've done before. Here you go. And so some of those references will be up there. Jesus introduces himself, those three things. Son of God, the one with the blazing eyes of fire, and with the feet of burnished bronze. It goes on. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Sounds great. They're doing better. They're doing more. They're getting more efficient. Uh, something like that. There's something about what is going on in Thyatira where the works that they started with are getting surpassed. They're doing something better. That's that commendation for the church, something good going on for them which is exciting, man. I want to hear that from Jesus. Like you guys are doing better than you when you started. They're growing in these virtues of love, faith, service, patient endurance. And it's not even vague. Like they're doing better in those things. Those are good things. In fact, if we remember from the first letter in Ephesus, Ephesus's big deal was they weren't doing great at the love thing. They lost their first love. They were good at doctrine, but they lost their first love. These guys are doing a good job at love. Good on them. Let's go on to verse 20 because there's always something next in the compliment sandwich of Revelation. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Does that name ring any Jezebels for you guys? I'll see you later. Uh... <laughs> Uh, okay, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Um, can I just tell you, Jewish history, there would not probably be a Jewish woman named Jezebel. Uh, like, it's just, it's not like a great look. Uh, and so there's probably not a woman in this church named Jezebel. Instead, it's a description of a woman and saying, hey, there's somebody in your church who's acting like Jezebel. Now, why wouldn't it be a good name? Well, there was this king uh, of the northern kingdom 
of Israel named Ahab. And Ahab decided to marry a woman who was a worshiper of Baal named Jezebel. Baal's not good. Like just in general, like if you see B-A-A-L, be like, I'm not going to touch that. Like not worth it, not worth it. And she was so good at seducing Ahab as well as the, ki- the community, the kingdom around them that they're like, hey, let's worship this Baal. And so they built altars to these false gods of the nations around them and they became corrupted. And so that's why you wouldn't name your baby Jezebel. Uh, but it's also a strong critique of this woman in this church. So what do we do with that? Like, how do, how do, we, how do we look at that? Um, it's not good. We see this um, food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. It's another dig against her from the letter in Acts, if you guys remember from last week. If you weren't with us last week, the early church, the expectation for them was, hey, real simply, like as you Gentiles, as you non-Jews join our midst, let's like make sure you guys don't practice uh, idolatry and don't practice sexual immorality. Can we like at least stick to that to start? And so whatever's going on is exactly the opposite of what was expected of the church in the book of Acts and tied to a really bad time in Israel's history. This woman is leading God's people away from God. And you ever think about this? Is it possible to love without following God? Is it possible to grow in those virtues from the beginning of the letter? while still walking away from God? This is a worthwhile question for us to consider. These people are probably being very comfortable to meld the culture of their day with the Christianity that they've started in. You see, these trade guilds that existed in this area, there's there's not much delineation between like work life and spiritual life. They're kind of all tied together. And so if you were part of a trade guild, the expectation was emperor worship. The expectation was, hey, if you're going to be in business, you need to do these things that our culture is doing. Otherwise, I'm not sure if you can be in business here. And they said, okay. Jezebel says it's fine. This church is doing great at love, but struggling with how to actually walk with God. And so we go on in the letter. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, if it's helpful, uh, it's possible there's sexual immorality going on in like the very like natural sense of it. It's also possible it's just idolatry. Uh, this is a common phrasing used to describe Israel's relationship with God, that they're unfaithful to him. And so whatever's going on, God has given her the opportunity to repent which is striking. If you start to read the Bible through this lens, start to read the Old Testament through this lens, you see God is always offering opportunity to repent. When you think of the wrathful God, you don't think about what offers to repentance came before that. So for this same woman, there's been an opportunity to repent that has been offered. And she has said, nah, I don't need that. So the book goes on. The letter goes on. Revelation 2.22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. 
Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart with the eyes. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Okay. So we start to see some of that like, hey, if you don't repent, there's going to be consequences. Uh, and I, I need to parse something out here for, for you guys because it might be confusing or weird because you've maybe heard different things. He said, Jesus is saying here in this letter to this church, and these are red letters in, in your Bible, if you have a red letter Bible, it's Jesus speaking, that I'm gonna put her on a sick bed. I'm gonna, she's gonna get sick. Do, what do you guys think about? And you know, it'd be weird if you, when you want to answer, you can, but like, what do you think about? Do you think being sick is like a consequence for sin? I feel like I learned somewhere along the lines because Jesus said, uh, when someone asked, hey, what happened to this guy? Was it his parents sinned or him? And he said, neither. It was so as the glory of God could be brought forth. We have a reference to that passage up there in John chapter nine. So I learned somewhere along the lines and assumed from that passage that, oh, if you're sick, it's not a result of sin. Like God's not trying to get your attention at all. It's just, it's just random. And yet I think this, along with, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which comes after communion, which I'll read this about communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says in verse 29 and 30, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. This is my, why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So if it's helpful, like, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make some big statement here, but sometimes God uses sickness to get our attention. God uses sickness to call us back to him. Um, and so... God can do whatever he wants to with whatever he wants to. And so this passage is affirming God does that sometimes. Now, don't worry. Every time you get a cold, you don't need to be like, my life is terrible and I need to put myself in sackcloth and ashes. Like, um, we don't have many sackcloths around. So um, anyway. Um, but, uh, not, not but. And for the people who are following her, the same call to repent is given. So first was to the leader and then to the people. And I think about this as I see churches that have fallen apart um, and there's documentaries and series on these things. The call to repent is first to the leader and then to the people within the, the group, within the church. So there's more opportunities for repentance offered. But he says, if they don't, um, they're gonna have the same problem in their lives. And it doesn't necessarily mean earthly children for her. It probably means her followers and some might die, which is scary. Like, this feels like, what well, how do I deal with this version of God that's willing to, like, smite? <laughs> uh, it's worth wrestling with. It's worth feeling the tension of. God sees. The eyes of fire search our hearts. And they search our actions, and God wants to see us and make us whole. The call to repentance is just the most important part of all this. I feel like again and again, like how gracious God is to us in our sin. And it seems like the repayment of deeds, both in the negative, but also in the positive is part of the way God works. And I mentioned, uh, one of the small group coaches had mentioned this was a thing that came up like, how, do we, how does God repay deeds? Like, isn't that like opposed to grace? Um, well, no, like grace is not opposed to our effort. It's opposed to earning you guys heard that at the fall retreat. Um, by God's grace, we don't earn our salvation. But Jesus himself in Matthew 19 says, uh, you can store up treasures in heaven. I don't know what that looks like. 
It's probably not a PlayStation 5, um, but there's something going on where God is offering that. And I just want to, I want to point out, like, this is sometimes confusing to read scripture like this, because you think you have one framework and you have another one, like, the whole, account, the whole council of scripture is more complicated sometimes than a simple soundbite. They have a tight-knit community of love. Jesus affirms that. But there's something about their actions that don't match up with the love that God has given them. We'll get to that in a sec. Um, I want to talk about this other part of the church of Thyatira because there's this but uh, in here, which it's a good but. Um, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned some, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Good news, guys. Not everybody fell into the trap. Not everybody is... Not everybody is on the Jezebel train. Um, I don't know what saying so-called dark secrets are. There's some different things that commentaries say. Let's just say anything tied to Satan and secrets probably not worth delving into. Sound good? Great, okay. Um, this reminder for this church is to follow what they've been taught. It has echoes to me of that Acts letter to the churches um, where it says, abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. We don't lay any extra burdens upon you. I do not lay on you any other burden. It's not asking them to go deeper or like fight or like get in battle as Christians. He just says, hey, keep going. Let's finish the letter out. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, and to him I will give... Uh, sorry, the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. First off, I just want to point out, this finishes with to the churches. This isn't an isolated letter to an isolated church. It is written to Thyatira, but there are notes for all the churches in Asia Minor as well as for all churches throughout history. Um, but what gives with the authority and the morning star? First off, the authority. You guys ever hear that song, We Are Conquerors and Co-Heirs with Christ? That's just not made up. Like, God, for whatever reason, has invited us to be co-heirs with Jesus. And I don't necessarily know what that's gonna look like, uh, but the invitation is not just to be a subject, but to rule along with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, there are some references to Old Testament language if you want to dig into this a little bit with pot pottery. But I was thinking about um, uh, how in the New Testament, we are, we are clay and he is the potter and he makes us and he makes some pottery subject to wrath. And so some pottery is going to be smashed. Like some there is evil in the world. Let me be very clear. There's evil in the world and some people are eaten up by it. But to those who conquered, those who continue forward, there's hope to rule with Christ. And then the morning star, uh, 2 Peter 1.19 uh, talks about the morning star rising in your hearts. Most likely this is a reference to Jesus himself, his presence. So we are giving a co-heirness to the kingdom of God with Jesus, and we are giving Jesus, we are giving Jesus himself when we endure in the faith. 
And we could just start adding up this list of things from each of these letters to those who endure, those who conquer, those who continue forward in the faith. And I think, man, that's an encouragement to me when I feel like I don't want to keep going. Okay. If you've not listened or you're like, what is going on? Let me just give you the simplest version of this. Thyatira is the antithesis. Uh, Thyatira is the opposite of the church of Ephesus. And so the church of Ephesus that's, that starts our sequence of letters talks about how they are good at maintaining good doctrine, but they've lost their love. Thyatira is good at love, but they've lost their doctrine. They've lost their way as a church community. Uh, at least those who are succumbing to the teachings of Jezebel. There's a need for truth and love. Not one or the other, they go together. This letter is inviting these people to repent and turn back to godly actions, not just love spoken, but, and not just actions that are good, but rooted in God. Jesus says this simply, and I, I think this is just the, the most succinct way to say it. In, in uh, chapter 14 of John, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's very easy to start to take the teachings of Jesus and say, well, just love. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there are things that Jesus calls us to. And so the book of Acts, that's what the church is not putting, is putting on the Gentiles, saying, hey, these specific things. But then as we read the gospel accounts, we see a life that Jesus is calling them to that is sacrificial and is rooted in love towards God and towards neighbor. And so we, as Christians, need to align our lives with the teachings of Jesus, not just the heart of it. Let me, let me give you an example, because sometimes like rules can feel confusing or things like that. Um, I want my kids to love me, and I love my kids. Um, sometimes I have to lay down specific expectations for them. And I remember when Ava was little, uh, maybe Amelia's size, maybe a little smaller even, and we'd be playing in the driveway, and she'd have, start walking towards the street. And you know what I would do? I would say, I would say to her, stop! Stop! Not because I don't love her, but because I love her. I want her to learn that the boundary I'm setting for her is a good boundary, a safe and helpful boundary. I want her to know that going into the street will elicit concern from her father. These boundaries exist all over the place. I'm guessing in your chem labs or things like that, you're given lots of rules before you can go play with the chemicals. Uh, we understand boundaries and expectations on the way we live Sometimes. But when it comes to other parts of our life, we feel that tension. I think this is what the church at Thyatira was feeling. Because we do live in a culture that is counter to Jesus. And we have a culture that loves the idea of Jesus, loves the loving parts of Jesus, the sacrifice for your neighbor parts of Jesus, but there are other parts of walking with Jesus that are hard for the world around us. And therefore probably hard for us. Um, whenever you want to try to hammer a point home, you quote an old dead guy. And so let me put, quote an old dead guy for you. Um, this is from a guy named Francis Schaeffer. 
Francis Schaeffer is an amazing um, Christian thinker who established Christian community in really beautiful ways and helped people engage with the world. And he says, truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation. Loving confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to do confrontation. Um, What's going on in Thyatira is going on in churches all over the place where the lack of confrontation because truth is scary and confrontation is hard leads to slipping. Slipping in the way we live, slipping in the way we affirm other people to live. We are tempted uh, in a few different ways as a result. And I'm guessing it might have come down to your personality or your upbringing or things like that. So I want to give you two. I want to give you the major one and I want to give you a couple like bonus ones. Um, The first temptation we have is to be too permissive. To say, that's fine, no big deal. Sin's not a thing anymore. The cross covers that. Um, The reality is Jezebel and whatever she was teaching that church in Thyatira is a problem and we have those same things in our world today. My guess is some of you are like, no, we are not permissive. Can I tell you your temptation? Your temptation is to either withdraw, like we're gonna create a Christian bubble here. I like my WBGL, I like my Christian circle, I'm just gonna hang out with the Christian people, I'm not gonna engage in the world. Or you become embattled. And you think, we are going to take the hill. We will get a Christian nation again, or whatever it might be. And that's not a bad thing to want Christian influence, but um, the expectation, let me just be clear for these two, nothing else is added. So we don't need to add to the gospel to live Christianly or invite other people to live Christianly. Um, I don't think this is a temptation for many of us, but for some of you, if you needed to hear that, you don't need to add to the gospel to make Christianity thrive in our culture. You don't need to make it more complicated. You don't need to make it more rigid. You don't need to add to it. The gospel is that God sees us in our sin. I see you. I see your works. And I love you. And I want you to return to me. But I want to focus more on this, this first temptation, to be too, to be too permissive. I think we love our neighbors and I think we love being liked. And so it's easy to say, let's make it easier to be a Christian. Let's not actually hold these things that Jesus says really strongly in our own lives or our neighbor's lives. So, well, it's fine. Grace covers that. And to, to, let me tell you, I <clears throat> live in grace. I'm thankful, but I also have to live in repentance. When I yell at my children, not telling them to stop in the street, but out of anger, out of sin. Um, <clears throat> when I um, hold something against a brother instead of talking about it with him, uh, when I sin, I, have, I need to repent. And that's the way of Jesus. Not just saying it's fine and then just letting the cycle continue onward. This is what's, this is what's happened in um, a lot of, and we could talk about plenty of churches, I'm not gonna get specific, but where it feels like it's not that big of a deal. Your sin's not that big of a deal. It is because your sin separates you from God. Not just like in a theoretical sense, but it starts to become idolatry, which is why idolatry is pointed out here. It becomes looking to something else instead of God for your hope. So for for all of you, and this is for me too, I would encourage you, if you feel like you're being too permissive, watch what, what influences you. Watch what things you're seeing become doctrine level things in your life. Um, how does music shape you? How is Taylor Swift shaping you? 
She's shaping all of us these days, and you can't escape her. Um, but seriously, how are the words and the songs you listen to shaping you? How are the TV shows you watch shaping you? It's not, it's not that different than anything else. Like We know the influences in the world shape us and cause us to see the ways of God as maybe not quite that, but maybe this instead. Um, watch out. The antidote is to know God, to know his word, to know people who are enduring. And if you feel frustrated by this, if you feel like you don't know what to do, you're like, I feel like, I don't know, am I being too permissive or am I being too embattled and fighting and trying to create like boundaries for people? Um, I just want you to know it's not your job. Um, I was thinking about this, like it feels like it's just not our job to like land exactly where to do this. In your life, it is worthwhile for you to consider it. Um, but what's exciting is Jesus, the very one who wrote this letter, um, has overcome the world. And the concerns and those influences and those things, you're like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm confused. I feel just frustrated. Jesus is overcome. And so in the same discourse between Jesus and his disciples where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he also goes on and says, um, I've said these things to you in John chapter 16, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And maybe, maybe like, if I could leave you with that, Jesus is overcome in the midst of all of this. And so if you feel like you've slipped somewhere, you feel like, man, I need to think about this. If you want to talk about doctrine, if you want to talk about how do I live this thing out in real life, let's talk about it. Like, I don't think there's anything off limits to talk about. Like, it's helpful to have those discussions. But remember, Jesus is overcome in all of it. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to sing to him. Um, and we're going to declare our allegiance to him in the sacrament of communion. Um, and so we're going to sing a song take communion together and then we're going to sing a couple songs. So I'm going to pray and um, invite our band up to, to lead us in our worship.